two things this morning. We are going to talk about heaven and hell. And we are going to talk about anger, grudges and reconciliation. We're going to talk about heaven and hell because Jesus refers to both in this passage and because they don't mean what you think they mean. We are going to talk about anger, grudges and reconciliation because that's what Jesus instructs us on in this passage. And I'm going to try and reverse my own usual trend by spending less time on the first one and more time on the second. Heaven and hell. It says this, uh, and, and this is our overlap with last week. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 22, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Well, I said that heaven and hell, in this passage at least, don't mean what you think they mean. Now I'm not inside your head, I don't know for sure what you think they mean. Maybe you're right. Um, But I've had it wrong my whole life, and I'm just now slowly trying to correct my own mistake. And maybe you might come with me on that same journey. So here's what I suspect most of us hear when we hear these two verses. The first one, I'll reword it in the positive. Uh, If your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, after you die, you will get to live for all eternity in a state of constant bliss and paradise in a place called heaven. That's how I've always, in my mind, heard this verse. And then the second one, whoever says you fool, after they die will go to a place of eternal, fiery torment, and that place is called hell. Well, let's talk first about heaven. Never once in the Bible is heaven spoken of in terms of the place you will go when you die to receive eternal life. Never once. Does that surprise you? Heaven is a word uh, that in its blandest sense merely means sky, okay? But we know that we use words, bland words, to mean uh, more exciting things all the time. But have you ever asked a dad, what's up? And he said, the sky. Well, many times heaven means the sky or upward. It's just a way to describe things that are up. Because God is unseen... Jewish people throughout the ages described God as dwelling in the sky, in a place beyond our view where he can't be seen, somewhere beyond our view. And so the word heaven also gets, in in this religious sense, also gets used to describe God's dwelling place. And this has run from Judaism into Christianity as well, since Jesus taught us to pray our Father in heaven. It's the place, it's the name for the place that we use to describe where God is and we are not. To the extent that heaven is a place, it is the place where God lives, uh, the place from which he watches and manages everything that happens on earth. The word heavenly can be used to describe something that is uh, otherworldly or spiritual or uh, majestic in purity. And so it's interesting in Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 18, or perhaps 19, (laughs) uh, also in today's passage, Jesus said, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, 
Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. The way Jesus says it, he's using heaven and earth as sorts of opposites of each other, isn't he? Until, you know, this extreme and that extreme pass away. But it's interesting that under our usual way of thinking, we would expect the opposite of heaven to be hell, not the earth. I, don't, I, I suspect for most of you, because that's what it's been for me. But Jesus is using the word heaven to describe things that are spiritual and unseen and earth to describe things that are physical and seen. He's putting these two together to just say everything. So here he's saying something like, uh, the law and the scriptures cannot be changed. Everything else would have to be destroyed first. Everything you can see and touch and everything that you can't see or touch or even imagine. Everything that is below and everything that is above, all these things would have to be destroyed before even a single scrap can disappear from the word of the Lord. Uh, One other thing about heaven in today's passage in particular is that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. Heaven is, it comes together in this phrase, kingdom of heaven. And Matthew is the only one in all of the New Testament who writes kingdom of heaven. He uses it in exactly the same way that the other gospel writers do when they call it the kingdom of God. Matthew says heaven. And the idea or the theory behind it is that Matthew was a devoutly Jewish man speaking primarily to a Jewish audience and the Jewish people had, uh, had a preference to avoid using the word God if possible or his name because that would, uh, as a mark of respect, I'm not even worthy to speak his name. And so, uh, so he's just substituted the word heaven for God. So when Jesus here is talking about uh, the kingdom of heaven, he's using heaven kind of as another word for God. This is God's kingdom. Not, not so much in terms of a place that we need to imagine with clouds and harps and gates, etc. But this is, uh, this is just the place where God is or the things that fall under his rule and ownership. He's not really talking about the place that you go into like passing through a door or passing into when you die. He's talking about your citizenship and your belonging. So, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, then you do not belong to God. You do not belong to God. You cannot be a citizen in his dwelling place. Uh, You cannot be adopted as his child or whatever other metaphor he might use. Now, the error of thinking that Jesus is talking here about getting into eternal paradise, it's not a catastrophic error. And I'm not correcting it because, I, you know, I think you're uh, terribly wrong or I was terribly wrong or astray. But it is a categorical error. It is a mistake. It's not actually exactly precisely what Jesus is saying. Uh, and, um, and, and it does have some consequences. But let me say this. You could believe it until you die that Jesus is talking about getting into heaven when you die, and you'll be fine, okay? This isn't, it's not a deal breaker. But in terms of the real hope that Jesus offers, if you continue in this mistake, and for me as well, we'd be both mistaking what Jesus is saying and missing out on what Jesus is saying. The mistake is this, the mistake is thinking that the final consummation is heaven and hell, where instead the Bible teaches that the final consummation is a new heavens and a new earth with resurrected bodies, That's our hope, not this uh, spiritual floating uh, paradise where nothing ever really happens and certainly nothing bad happens, but uh, maybe it's just singing, maybe it's music, maybe it's formless and bodiless. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus was resurrected in the body 
And the hope for us, according to Scripture, is that those who believe in Him will be resurrected to live in a brand new earth where God uh, in heaven uh, is sort of one with that. But we also miss out on something if we get this wrong. We, get, we miss out on the fact that Jesus' promise is for today. It's for today. It's not, you know, just wait until you die. It's going to be so good then. The message is, you're in. You belong. Today, God is your father. You are his child. You are his subject. He is your Lord. He protects you, defends you, knows you. Live today to bring honour to your Father and know today that you are loved by him. That's the kingdom of heaven. It's an immediate thing. Let's talk about hell. It might surprise you that verse 22 is the first time hell is mentioned in the whole Bible. It may further surprise you that between them, John, Paul and Peter and the author of the Hebrews, these are men who between them wrote half of the whole New Testament, never once mention hell. They don't talk about it. The Greek word in the New Testament behind the English word hell is a word called Gehenna. Gehenna was the name of a valley outside Jerusalem and there's two things about the valley of Gehenna. In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah cursed the valley of Gehenna because some of the Jewish people, including their kings, were sacrificing their infants to other gods by burning them in fire in that place. And God detested that and he cursed it. And the other thing is that by Jesus' time, this same valley, Gehenna, was being used as a rubbish tip. And there was always fires there and it stunk and it was filthy and you didn't go there except to dump stuff and leave. So when you read the word hell in the Bible, where you picture caverns and lava pits and a red-horned devil tormenting sinners with a pitchfork, Jesus' listeners weren't picturing anything like that. They were picturing a place just outside Jerusalem that was a flaming, stinking rubbish tip, an actual place. And so Jesus obviously isn't saying you will go to this actual valley if you do these things, but he's saying that's all you're worth. That's where you belong. That's your true home. Jesus used the word Gehenna to make vivid in our imaginations what we are worth if we commit certain sins, deserving nothing better than to be cast aside and forgotten in a place where we'll eventually rot or burn to nothing. Again, it's not wrong to fear an eternal place of judgment. The Bible is clear. There is judgment. There is a day somewhere in the future when God will set everything straight and he will judge the wicked eternally and he will lift up those who are poor in spirit. But hell isn't necessarily the name of that place. The Bible certainly doesn't teach that. Hell is a description of burning waste and it's a warning. Let's talk about anger, grudges and reconciliation. I will say... This might feel like a radical thing. I am not saying at all that there is no eternal hope and no eternal judgment. Um, I'm not saying that and the scripture doesn't teach that. But heaven and hell are funny names that we've sort of invented to describe these things. Um, Anger, grudges and reconciliation. We now head into this fascinating section of the Bible where for the rest of the chapter Jesus repeats the same basic formula. He does it six times. He says, you have heard that it was said and then he says, do not murder or don't commit adultery, or something about divorce and swearing falsely, etc. And then he says, you have heard that it was said, don't do this, 
but I say to you this. In a way, this is a really clear passage of teaching in which Jesus says really straightforward stuff. He says things like, don't be angry with your brother. Uh, Don't curse and insult people. If you've done something wrong to someone, fix it. But in another way, there's sort of a, a confusing challenge of interpretation and understanding because this formula that Jesus sets out on here seems to have Jesus correcting passages of the Old Testament because uh, that's what he's quoting each time. Uh, as if he might have found something wrong with these passages of the Old Testament. But then this is, I talked a bit about this last week, that would directly contradict what he said in verse 17 where he said, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I haven't come to do away with this stuff. I've come to do it properly. And then, in an even more minute detail, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, remember that, before an iota or a dot will pass from the law. He's getting very specific and detailed and granular. So let me try to quickly explain. Jesus is not about, he is not abolishing the Old Testament laws when he says, you've heard this, but I say this. He's not contradicting them. He says he's not contradicting them and he's not contradicting them. Instead, he's championing them. Jesus is also not amplifying the Old Testament laws. So he's not saying, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. When he says that, he's not adding to the ancient murder law to make it more straightforward. He's not saying, oh, do not murder, that's not quite enough on its own. Uh, We need to add something to the do not murder law so that people don't even get close to murdering or something like that. What Jesus is doing is very simply applying and integrating the Old Testament laws. He's pulling different laws from the Old Testament together and putting them together to a thing that makes sense. So let me show you this excellent verse from Romans. This is the Apostle Paul says this. He says, The commandments that you shall not commit adultery and you shall not murder and you shall not steal and you shall not covet and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And that love your neighbour line, by the way, is also a command from the Old Testament. Jesus is just taking Old Testament scripture and integrating them. It's in Leviticus chapter 19. So when Jesus says it's not enough to not murder, you need to also not bear grudges and not be mean, he's not abolishing or diminishing the Old Testament, he's integrating it. The law, do not murder, sits alongside the law, and let's call it also a general principle, to love your neighbour. They exist in the same text, they exist in the same realm, you do both. And Jesus commands us to do, do both, which is really the same as following this greater principle of love, which also, if you apply that pretty well, is generally going to mean that you're not killing people. So please come with me on this. Many, many good Christians today, even from our broad theological camp, will say something like, Old Testament is law, rigid, lifeless and insufficient. New Testament is love, liberating, intuitive, forgiving. But I say with Jesus that the Old Testament understood rightly and normally is love and liberation and forgiveness pointing perfectly towards Christ who embodies and fulfills it all. 
Notice up here that Paul, who wrote this text in Romans, he uses the same language as Jesus when he says down the bottom, uh, love is the fulfilling of the law. So just as Jesus said he came to fulfill the law, Jesus Jesus isn't introducing the principle of love to a lifeless list of commands. Part of his fulfilment project is, uh, is to spell out for us the integration of God's law with love. Let's get really practical. Just working through from verse 21 to 26 with the things that Jesus very plainly says we must do. You shall not murder. He remains the champion of the do not murder law. Rather, uncontroversially, Jesus stands by it. So brothers and sisters in Christ, don't kill anyone. And play no part in murder. Uh, Once upon a time, I might have said something naive up here like, well, I know nobody here would have done that. Let's skip right along to things like anger and stuff like that. When I was in theological college, another student studying for ministry was arrested and confessed to being an accessory to murder. I'll give you an outline of events because I think it's helpful. This Bible college student had a friend from his army days who in a rage killed his ex-girlfriend's new partner with a hammer. And then he called his friend, who's now in Bible college, and says, I've done this terrible thing, help me out. And in loyalty to his friend, this fellow at college, who I didn't really know, but he helped dispose of the body and the evidence. That's a confronting story, but the thing that I find confronting is that if a friend asked me to do the same for them... It might depend on the friend. But would my sense of loyalty to my friend override my loyalty to God's command? It gets tricky sometimes, doesn't it? You can get tangled up in things. Or the other thing I find confronting as a person who struggles at times with anger, if I found myself in a particular cocktail of extreme circumstances that today I may not even be able to fathom, but if I was in these circumstances under immense pressure and I had a hammer in my hand, would I properly in that moment restrain my emotions? We've been doing a little bit of painting at home. It's not quite enough to say to small children, don't touch this wall. Instead, you say, stay out of the room or better still play outside. Well, you can practice not murdering in extreme circumstances by practicing in normal circumstances love and forgiveness uh, and as a lifestyle in every circumstance. Verse 22, Jesus says, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So don't be angry. A couple of caveats or explanations, by the way. Jesus isn't saying that anger is equal to murder if you had to pick from the two evils kill someone or be angry at them pick the lesser one and just be angry but also anger is evil so don't pick that either but the other caveat is this that not all anger is evil not all anger is evil god is angry with sin jesus demonstrated anger at times when he cleared the temple and uh, got stuck into verbal spats with his opponents So I think the obvious and reasonable interpretation of this is something more like, don't be angry without cause. 
although I've never known anger in myself or anyone else that didn't feel justified. We're always angry for a reason that makes it okay to be angry. You're never going, oh, gee, I don't know why I'm angry. I guess I'm angry without cause. Something a person did or something they just generally do or something they would do, I know it if they had the chance, or the kind of person they are or someone that they remind you of or the fact that you're tired or hungry or hormonal that day. All these things can make it okay in your heart, perfectly justified, to burn with rage. So instead of saying, don't be angry without cause, since we always have a cause, I would say, don't cultivate anger. Don't cultivate anger. And that could look like a few things. Don't complain. Complaining achieves nothing, except what it does achieve. It achieves nothing positive, What it does achieve is it cultivates anger. Complaining about someone perpetuates those feelings of self-righteousness and that intoxication of being right. If you have to talk, and sometimes, sometimes things can be so challenging and sometimes people can be so cruel that you need some outlet, you need a way to process things. If you need to talk, talk to God. Confess your anger and ask him to help you love that person. I will say that I think it's appropriate in certain circumstances to even speak to another person. Now you need to be careful to not enter into gossip and slander when you're talking to another person. These things are tempting, they suck us all in. But it might be the fact that you choose someone trusted and discreet that you can process your anger with. But talk with things like confession and forgiveness and problem-solving as the goal instead of just a good old rant and a rave because it makes you feel better. And be honest, you know the difference. So it might be uh, talk to your husband or wife, but instead of inviting each other into a vortex of blame and anger and gossip, say to your wife, love, I'm trying not to be angry, but this person infuriates me. Can I talk about it for a bit? They did this and they do that. And I said this and I said that and I know I shouldn't have. That's a much more productive way to have that conversation. Uh, Also try this. Instead of cultivating anger, focus on your responsibility in that situation. You can't control the other person, but you have some control over yourself and you certainly have responsibility for how you respond. You do know what God requires of you. Don't pretend you don't. Uh, In youth group on Friday night, we looked at Romans chapter 12, verse 21, which says, Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. So if someone is mean to you, don't respond with retaliation, but with kindness. And see what happens. It might work. It also might not. But that's on them. And responding with kindness is on you. Try this as well. We'll labour a bit longer. Try to understand the other person. If If you're mad at someone, or you feel they've wronged you, Do try to put yourself in their shoes for a minute. I heard it said once uh, that a helpful tool is to complexify the situation rather than simplify it. So it means instead of latching onto a single simple explanation of why that person did what they did, well, clearly it's because they hate your guts and they're a mean, horrible person. That's the simple explanation that we run away with. Search for other possible factors or explanations. Like, you don't know what that person went through in their childhood. You don't know what that person is going through in this last 24 hours. 
Maybe what that person did was actually an attempt to do the right thing. It just landed wrong. Maybe that person has competing interests and many people to please, and so the fact that you got the raw deal doesn't mean they hate you or they're incompetent. It may be that they could just see in their limited, finite sense no other option. Maybe prepare a conversation with the person who has angered you so you can productively and openly confront the difficulties. And remember this, vengeance is the Lord's, not yours. All of this is better than getting drunk on gossip and slander or riding the adrenaline wave of self-righteousness while you drink in just how awful or insufficient that other person is. It's better than entertaining yourself in bed while you should be sleeping by replaying all the terrible things they've done and all the things you should have said, all the things you'd like to do. Don't be angry. Verse 22, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That is, will be worthy of the flaming waste tip outside the city. I remember as a child hearing this read in church and cycling back through my memory and thinking, I don't think I've ever called anyone a fool, technically, which is just as well because that means I won't be going straight to hell to display another misunderstanding. Pat on the back for me. Some Bibles don't uh, translate the Aramaic word that Jesus actually used when he gave the sermon. They say, whoever says raka will be liable to the hell of fire. Even better. I would never have even thought of calling someone raka. Didn't even know the word. If we find ourselves wriggling out of Jesus' instructions on technicalities, we're reading him completely wrong. Okay, this is a command, I think, to not be mean. Don't say rude things to people or about them. Jesus said, we looked at this earlier in the sermon, Sermon on the Mount, He says, you are the salt of the earth. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul says, let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt. You are the salt of the earth. Season your speech with salt. So, whatever environment you're in, don't stoop to speak how everyone else speaks. Make the environment better by the way you speak. Bring God's light into the staff room. Among your friends who swear and gossip and speak with the uh, who swear and gossip, you speak with the invigorating salt of God's kindness and love. Verses twenty two and twenty three, uh, twenty three and twenty four. Sorry, integrates our human relationships with worship in a surprising way. Uh, if you are offering your gift at the altar, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I think the mislabeling of heaven and hell, to come back to uh, that, that minor but common mistake we often make, the mislabeling of these things as heaven and hell as the future places of eternal hope or judgment has partly led to a strangely over-spiritualised Christianity where we think what really matters is what will happen when we die. And what we do now matters less. What happens, what matters, is what we get when we die. And so if you find yourself in the wrong in a certain situation, you might think the main thing is to get right with God because you wouldn't want to go to hell. And maybe that's not totally incorrect, but it's definitely not the emphasis that Jesus places on things. Jesus doesn't place this hyper-spiritual emphasis on things. His application is very earthy. Jesus says, get right with the person before you get right 
with God. Imagine if we thought the equation was merely as simple as Jesus has died with our sin and then imagine we thought that the right spiritual response to our sins then is to just merely leave them hanging around Jesus' neck on the cross. Well, that would strike me as an ungrateful, unloving way to treat our Saviour. No, where possible, make up for your mistakes. Right your wrongs. Pay people back. Apologise and shape up. And then come to Christ also for forgiveness. We talked about this this morning. Finally, the last couple of verses. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with them to court. Deal with matters out of court. Come to arrangements and agreements that don't appear on your record. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny if you get all the way to court and you're found guilty. And I take this to be an extension of the one before about righting your wrongs. The scenario is that you're truly guilty of something, something bad enough that you've been taken to court. And I suspect the temptation would be to take your chances with the judge or the jury because they might find you not guilty. You never know. You might even get away with it. But if you know that you're wrong, there's no justice in getting away with it. Instead, be scrupulously honest and fearlessly vulnerable. Own up to your mistakes and make them right. Don't punish your victims further by making them go through the proper channels and the court. Don't burden the justice system or complaints departments. Sort yourself out. Deal with the things you've done wrong. To close, some people will interpret Jesus' instructions as if the subtext is this. This is, this is how some people interpret what Jesus is saying. Here, before you, is a list of impossible commands. You're not meant to keep them. By them, you are meant to realise that your life isn't what it should be and you need my grace for forgiveness. And only then may you maybe get one or two things right. A lot of people interpret it this way. And I find that to be an utterly lifeless way of understanding Jesus' very lively teaching. And if that's what he's trying to say, he's got a funny way of saying it when he tells us to do things and not do other things. It's more like this. Jesus says, here is a list of necessary commands. Do them. Live by them. And try to understand them So that if you find yourself in a situation that isn't spoken to directly, you at least know the heart. You know what Christ would say. You know what God does require and do that. In seeking to follow these commands, honour your Father in heaven and in failing them, come to Christ for forgiveness. Christ says, by my spirit I give you strength and by my death I give you grace. And by my resurrection, I do indeed give you eternal life. But take these words and live by them. And there is life in the obedience as well as in the reward. Let's pray. Father, these commands are not a heavy burden. They follow a basic principle of love and honour and respect. It is true that we won't measure up. It's true that we have all sinned. And it's true that uh, by your grace you grant us forgiveness. But it's clearly and patently true that you require us to do what is right, to love our neighbour, 
to be kind wherever possible and to make up for our own mistakes. Not in, a, not in order to get into heaven, but in order to do what is right and to honour our Father who is in heaven. To you be the glory. Amen.